Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that great day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I'd like to say thank you so much for stopping by. If this is your first time stopping by, I'd like to say thank you so much. Uh, Please let me know what you honestly think of the show by going to either Spotify or Apple Music and leaving a rating and a review. And if this is you tuning back in, thank you so much. I'm glad to see that the content that I uh, put together was uh, educational and entertaining enough that you might want to come back and listen to something else. So thank you so much, uh, everyone. I hope you are well. I hope you are safe. And I'm very excited to announce that in this episode, I will be uh, interviewing uh, Henry Huckamacki from Guerrilla History Podcast. Uh, We discussed uh, quite a few things, but uh, most importantly centered around the necessity for uh, the folks in the West who are politically conscious uh, to uh, act and begin getting involved in organizing, as well as some of the ways in which Guerrilla History Podcast has done this for Henry. Um, So I am very excited for this episode. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you folks will too. Um, Thank you so much for listening. And Without further ado, here is my interview with Henry Huckamacki, co-host of the Guerrilla History Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. I'm genuinely really excited to record this. I... um... I will probably go ahead and do a little intro myself after we record. So why don't you go ahead and give yourself a introduction of sorts, if you would like. Sure. So I'm I'm Henry Hakimaki. Uh, I'm an American who's currently living in Russia. Most people that would be familiar with me would know me through my role as co-host of the Guerrilla History podcast alongside Professor Adnan Hussein, uh, who's a historian and director of the School of Religion at Queen's University in Canada, uh, as well as Brett O'Shea, who many, many listeners would know is the host of Revolutionary Left Radio and co-host of the Red Menace podcast. So I've been doing that for a couple of years. Uh, I come from a science background, but currently not in the sciences at the moment. Uh, but yeah, that's basically the basic rundown of me, you know, interested in a lot of different things. And uh, that's how I ended up in, uh, you know, doing a history podcast while based in Russia is because I have too many interests. Too many interests really haven't hurt anybody in any other way except for their wallet, that's for sure. But um, thankfully, these interests are, uh, you know... Uh, useful and doing something about that as well. But anyways, my friend, um, just for the sake of kind of getting to know yourself a little bit, would you care to, it's not necessarily in the notes, but um, would you care to maybe give a little bit of a discussion of how you kind of came to, uh, I guess, communism and socialism and the ideas and beliefs that you folks kind of talk about there on your show, Guerrilla History? Yeah, sure. So uh, bear with me, because it's not going to be the most entertaining story of all time, but I I can give you the rundown on how my ideology kind of developed from when I was young. So 
I was always, you know, nominally on the left anyway, uh, even when I was very young. Um, my first real foray into really looking at politics and, and history a little bit more deeply was when I was in sixth grade, which I know sounds, you know, like a bit young to actually get invested in this sort of thing. But uh, I yeah, got quite interested in the Ralph Nader 2008 campaign, which was the last time that he ran for president. It was not a very successful campaign, uh, you know, at, at least compared to his 2000 run. But even in sixth grade, you know, I was already identified with the anti-imperialist left. I wouldn't have called myself anti-capitalist at that point. Ralph Nader himself obviously is not anti-capitalist. He's not a socialist, but, you know, he's a green progressive uh, and gen genuinely a good guy uh, by all accounts. So, yeah, that was kind of my first step into being interested in politics was the Ralph Nader 2008 campaign. And uh, after then, I, I started to read a bit more in, in terms of, you know, some elementary political theory, a lot of history books um, when I was growing up, middle school, high school. Uh, and then when I went to university, I went to a very, very working class university, like one of the poorest public institutions in the state in terms of major universities. Uh, this is in Michigan, uh, though my accent is from the Upper Peninsula, in case anybody is wondering. Uh, so very working class institution. Um, most of the organized political thought on the campus is pretty far to the left. Uh, not talking about professors, but in terms of actual student sentiment, it's pretty far to the left. And uh, I was very involved in, in activism and protests there, uh, particularly within the Palestinian liberation movement. Um, almost all of my friends were uh, Middle Eastern or even uh, I had many that were specifically from Palestine. So I was at all of those sort of actions. But I did have other uh, th other topics that I was an activist towards at the same time. And that was also when I really started to uh, come to grips with my, my anti-capitalist ideological stance. Um, pretty much as soon as I got into university, you know, it was just a... a a natural development from my previous progressive left anti-imperialist stance was picking up the anti-capitalist elements. And as time has gone on, you know, I've uh, continued to develop ideologically. I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, I've gotten like there was no moment when I became dramatically farther to the left where I was pr than I was previously. Just educating myself over time has slowly nudged me slightly farther to the left than I was before. But it, what it has done is really clarified my position. So ideologically speaking, my instincts were always um, kind of on the, you know, the socialist left, but uh, through, through study, through activism, uh, and through discussion with people like uh, my co-hosts on Guerrilla History, as well as the people that we've talked to, uh, as well as you know people that I was in activist circles with during my undergrad, that helped me clarify my positions to the point where I I'm not just saying, yeah, I'm on the left. I, I have you know a specific ideological tendency now that I associate myself with. So that's kind of the basic rundown um, of my ideological development, at least in those earlier years. That's uh, that's pretty cool that you were, you know, that kind of aware at such a young age. Um, for listeners who have checked out the show before, I came from a really conservative evangelical background. So whenever I hear folks talk about how they were, um, you know, at least 
socially conscious, possibly politically conscious, at the age of, like you said, like sixth grade, it's incredible to me because I think that, you know, that's not, I don't want to say it's not common as in it's like weird, but it's not common as in you don't often hear of, you know, children being politicized. I have, um, I have a homie that I met who's come on the show who's from Brazil and his folks were actually uh, communists during the uh, guerrilla periods um, and have recently uh, rejoined uh, the party. And um, it's just incredible to me because at a young age, he even had a nickname in school uh, that he was like communist. And that's just to me, that's just insane. It's very, it's very interesting. But I'm sure that it's helped with uh, grappling with a lot of the more uh, critical questions that come in politics in regards to things like anti-imperialism, like you in the sixth grade being more anti-imperialist than anti-capitalist is backwards to how some, you know, supposed socialists in the West today are. Um, they can wager a fantastic critique of anti-capitalism but then as soon as you talk about well how are we going to develop an egalitarian system that doesn't continuously oppress the global south it's crickets um so that's very cool very interesting um so kind of in regards to that uh you folks on guerrilla history bring on some absolutely incredible guests and have some very, very important conversations. Um, so I wanted to ask you about some of your more recent episodes. What have been some of your favorites, whether it's in regards to the topics or it's just, you know, the folks that you have had on? Yeah, it's a good question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna open with a very corny answer, but then I'll discuss a little bit more afterwards. So initially, I'll, I'll say that I love all of the episodes that we've done on guerrilla history, which yeah, sounds incredibly corny, but uh, really, we only invite people onto the show if we think that they have some interesting scholarship or activism that they've been involved with, if we appreciate the work and we think that it would be useful for our audience in some way. So we really are very selective in terms of who we're bringing on to the show in the first place, which necessarily means that every time we have a guest on the show or every time we have a conversation about a specific topic, it's a topic that we all care about. And it's with a guest who is eminently qualified to speak about it, either academically or in real world context. So, you know, the, the first thing that I'll say is that I really do love all of the conversations that we have. And every time that we, we get together, the hosts, that is uh, myself, Adnan and Brett, uh, we're suggesting topics to cover and guests who we'd want to bring on. And every time, so everybody is just, yeah, I love that. I love that. We'll do that every time. So we have this long, long, long list of topics and guests that we plan on bringing on to the show. And uh, yeah, they're all they're all excellent. If I want to narrow it down to some of the more recent episodes that I think that are particularly uh, interesting or useful, uh, that's how I'll frame it. Because I, like I said, I really do appreciate all of the guests and conversations that we've had. Uh, of course, the listeners, if they listen to Guerrilla History, they will be unsurprised to find that I absolutely adore uh, Emmanuel Ness, Manny Ness. Uh, he's, a, he's a friend and a comrade of mine. He's a political scientist. 
at Brooklyn College and is a visiting professor at University of Johannesburg in South Africa. Unbelievable scholarship that the guy puts out. And I, I believe I said it in the last time that we had him on the show, the last episode that we had with him, that I think that the scholarship he does is as important and as as ideologically refined as just about anybody operating today. It's incredibly important and it's very underappreciated. Um, so, I mean, that's my first plug is for anybody that's listening to this. If you haven't checked out Emmanuel Ness's work, uh, he has uh, so many books. He has five books coming out this year alone. Uh, he edits the, the Journal of Labor and Society, which is a fantastic academic journal regarding uh, yeah, capital, imperialism, uh, labor movements, uh, agrarian uh, issues are covered pretty extensively in there, which is something that's forgotten about in many other academic discourses on uh, the anti-capitalist left. Uh, he's just a very important person that everybody should be checking out. Um, we have an episode coming out this week, actually, this upcoming week, uh, that I think is going to be very interesting for the listeners. And it's about socialist states and the environment with Salvatore Engel de Mauro. So this is just a little bit of a teaser of what's coming out. Uh, the episode's going to be almost three hours long. It, it's very long and very comprehensive. But the, the thesis of this episode uh, and the thesis of Salvatore's work is that we're always fed this narrative that state socialist countries are worse for the environment. They're, they're inevitably worse for the environment than capitalist countries. But what he shows through his extensive scholarship on the issue and in his book and, and as we lay out in the conversation, not only is that not necessarily true, but historically that just frankly was false uh, in terms of in, in terms of practical uh, analysis, looking at the data. So that is a very interesting conversation, something that's very useful for us that on uh, the anti-capitalist left, you know, the communist left, socialist left, however you define yourself, if you're also uh, involved in the environmental struggle, which we all should be, this is a very interesting episode that I think you'll find quite useful. Um, but yeah, I guess I'll just shout out one other uh, specific episode of guerrilla history that I think was quite uh, different than than many of the others that we've done. So we've had many um, amazing guests like Alex Avenia and Nick Estes, you know, the, the fan favorites from Revolutionary Left Radio. Um, we've had just great guests, great guests in general. If you go onto our podcast feed and you scroll back down through the list of guests we've had I mean, to a to a person, they're all excellent. But the one that I think that was the most exciting for us to get in terms of when I was actually able to book it was with uh, Comrade Joma Sison, who was the founding chairman of the Communist Party of the Philippines. Uh, the guy is an absolute legend. He was a political prisoner for years and years, years of solitary confinement, uh, an ideological titan, a wonderful writer, and a very, he, he's a funny guy to talk to. I mean, he's very fun and funny, has a great sense of humor. Uh, but the guy is is legendary within the the communist left, particularly if you fall into a, more of a Maoist tendency. But even outside of Maoist circles, uh, I would say that he's you know kind of uh, a legend, at least in terms of living uh, revolutionaries. And the fact that we were able to get him on the show and have almost a two hour long conversation with him about his life, his ideological development, and the history of the Communist Party of the Philippines. That was a very interesting and fun conversation. So that's another one that 
if you if you don't listen to Guerrilla History and you're listening to this show and you want to check out the show that I do, uh, that might be an interesting starting point for you because it's somebody who really was engaged in the struggle as well as the ideological and academic side of things. We, we try to get as many people from, from both as we can. That was an absolutely incredible episode. I think that was what I messaged you about for one of the first times I messaged you uh, was how cool it was that you were able to get him on there. Um, for folks who don't know, uh, he has a YouTube channel, which is fucking incredible, and it's really cool to watch um, just because he is such a legendary person. But then, you know, listening to him speak, he's just like many leaders. He's just, you know, a human being. Um, and that episode showed how uh, <clears throat> deep-seated his ideology is in the masses, in the people, and in the idea that, you know, the really oppressed and exploited uh, folks uh, are the ones who are the most revolutionary. And so that was a uh, very, very... Uh, important episode, I feel. I was introduced to the show right as it came out because I'm a huge fan of Rev Left uh, and Red Menace. And so uh, I believe it was, it might not have been your very first episode, but I think it was one of them with Vijay Prashad on Washington Bullets, um, which I found really, really interesting because at the time I had just read the book. Um, and so it was... Uh, it, it was just a really good listen right after reading that. And it, uh, honestly, in a lot of cases at that period of time where I was in like my uh, radicalization, so to speak, um, was like it, very beginning. So that kind of sent me down a much more revolutionary path in terms of uh, ideology than I think many folks are introduced to because of the nature of the capitalist propaganda machine, as well as uh, the appealing nature of things like uh, social democracy and uh, you know other forms of uh, more reformist politics. But anyways, um, are there any episodes? Well, you kind of covered that, what was coming up in the future to really have a lookout for. So folks should check that out. Um, well, I, I can go a little bit deeper into upcoming plans if you want. I can, sure, I can tease a few things it. anyway. Yeah, I so I, I, can't, I can't be super firm on anything else. It's the only thing that we have already recorded. So, you know, I, I can guarantee that it'll be out at a specific time. Um, but in terms of other things that the listeners can, can be looking out for if they're interested in checking out the show, uh, I'm going to be doing a, this is a Patreon exclusive um, that I'm going to be discussing uh, in a second, is a new translation, or actually the first time it's been translation, of Alexander Bogdanov's Art and the Working Class. And I'll be doing an interview with uh, the, the translator, Taylor Genovese, who was a guest on a previous episode of Guerrilla History about the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. And uh, my my partner, actually, my girlfriend, will be taking part in that interview as well because she's a, a, a Russian linguist. So uh, in terms of both translation as well as in terms of the arts, uh, she is far more qualified than I am to carry on that conversation. But in terms of the ideological side of things, uh, that's where I'll kind of pick up the thread. So we'll take kind of a two-track 
um, a discussion on that episode. But like I said, that'll be a Patreon exclusive. In terms of things that listeners can listen to for free, which is almost everything else on our show, we put very little behind a paywall um, forever. We just try to entice some some people to help us pay our platform fees and whatnot. But we'll have uh, an episode coming up relatively soon about uh, Edward Said's uh, Representations of the Intellectual, which is a book based on a series of uh, lectures that he gave on the BBC um, very interesting uh, series of lectures. So we'll be getting together to record that just amongst ourselves. We're also trying to book some other uh, guests right now. I know that there's one that I already have a, a kind of verbal commitment from. We haven't scheduled the date yet where we'll be talking about female development in Burkina Faso, both during the Sankara era as well as the post-Sankara era. So an incredibly esoteric topic, but sometimes we do that on girl history. Sometimes we take super broad topics and try to give you a broad picture so that we can dive in more in depth on specific topics in the future. And then this is the specific dive right here, the women's development in Burkina Faso, as well as a comparative analysis of Ghana. Uh, won't tease the scholar's name yet uh, because I want it to be a little bit of a surprise. Uh, also, we've got we're going to be trying to get somebody who was in the Red Army faction in West Germany, which that would be very interesting if we're able to get that across the line, which at, at this point, it seems like we will, but nothing absolutely confirmed yet. And uh, right now, we only have uh, we've only recorded one episode of Guerrilla History with somebody who was designated as an international terrorist, which was Joe Masison. But we're also trying to get an episode recorded with somebody else who is uh, classified as a as a terrorist. Um, you know, they're they're a communist and they were involved in anti-imperialist struggle. So the U.S. as well as a lot of other countries labeled her as a terrorist. And so that's we're just in the very beginning stages of trying to get that one uh, on the books right now. There's no guarantees that that one will come across, but. If it does, that'll be a very, very fun episode. I'm, I'm really hoping that we can get that one on the books. You do such a good job of really teasing who these guests are going to be. I'm very interested to listen to these episodes and very excited for them to come out. Um, so speaking of, you know, kind of the broad uh, amount of people you're able to get on the show, um, how is it? you know, kind of been being able to develop these relationships with folks like your co-hosts, Brett and Adnan, as well as others, like you said, like Manny Ness and Gerald Horn. Um, and to kind of uh, add to that question, um, how is it that folks like us who create content and other people who, you know, maybe possibly listen to this content uh, to do more than just simply talk uh, but actually organize and build a more, uh, as I put it in the notes, interconnected web of, say, independent news sources, organizations, media outlets, and just organizers in general who have uh, this kind of network and relation uh, that they're able to build. Yeah, I think that that's a really important question. Uh, both parts of it. There's There's really two parts that you asked there. So the first part was with regards to the connections that we've formed within the show. And that's been very important personally for me. 
in terms of my furthering ideological development, you know, anybody who says that they're ideologically at, at their conclusion is either lying or is a deeply unserious person about actually bringing about real change in society, revolutionary change. We're never ideologically uh, done developing. We should always be trying to develop further. So in terms of the the other hosts of the show, Adnan and Brett, um, it's been amazing getting to, to know them better. So Adnan and I had been previously connected through another show that we both do have kind of guest hosting slash guest roles on. And that was how Adnan actually was the person who raised the, the idea of us doing a podcast together, uh, was through our connection on that other show, uh, the David Feldman show, in case anybody wants to check it out. It comes out twice a week and it's like seven hours long each episode. So if you need something to, you know, get you through a day of work, that's, uh, you know, progressive, not necessarily anti-capitalist. There are certainly anti-capitalist communist guests on the show, like Adnan and myself, as well as some of the people that I bring onto the show when I'm guest hosting it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just you, uh, in general, a progressive show, but uh, worth checking out. David is a Emmy Award winning comedian, so you can get a little bit of a lighter side to politics than we we typically have on guerrilla history. But anyway, we uh, Adnan and I had this bit of a relationship before, uh, and I had previously done an episode on Rev Left Radio where I was talking about COVID from uh, an immunobiologist's perspective, which is the field that I'm trained in. And uh, yeah, Adnan raised the idea of doing a podcast together. He and I kind of pushed some ideas back and forth about what the show should be, could be. And I decided that I would check with Brett if he would be interested in also doing the show because he and I also had a bit of a rapport at that point. And he was all for the idea, uh, was very excited about it. And so, yeah, we kind of jumped in two-footed into the idea. And over the course of the last year and two months or so since we started the show, uh, we've really become good friends as well. So Adnan and I were you know, aware of each other. We would talk to each other. We would do some things together. But, you know, I wouldn't say that we were necessarily friends before. Uh, Brett, I had only been on his show once and had sent some emails back and forth with him. But now, I mean, we're, we're genuinely very good friends with one another. Um, and we are constantly teaching each other things. That's why at the beginning and end of most guerrilla history episodes, you'll hear like a minute of, you know, oh, it was so nice doing this with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And, and sometimes the listeners will kind of tease us about that, writing things to us on Twitter like, oh, yeah, just have to tune into the last minute of guerrilla history. And then you'll hear some like wholesome just thanking of each other and, uh, you know, saying that we're, we're good friends and whatnot, because it is genuinely nice to see the two of those guys when we do get together. In terms of the guests, it's also been incredibly useful, both in terms of just having them on the show and talking to them about the work that we've already read about, read up on, uh, to have them be able to respond to our questions and kind of have a conversation about their work. It really helps us deepen our understanding of their work which helps us then use the lessons of that work to apply it to an analyzing and acting in the real world. But some of the guests, as you've mentioned, have become uh, kind of friends of the show and, and friends of us individually. So Manny Ness and I are emailing back and forth pretty 
pretty constantly. I, I just adore the guy. I mean, I really can't stress enough how lovely Manny Ness is as a person and, and how wonderful of a scholar he is. Uh, Salvatore, our, our next guest, the episode that'll be coming out this week on social estates and the environment. Similarly, we send like page long emails to each other, multi-page long emails to each other about all kinds of things. Gerald Horn, we've had on the show several times. Vijay Prashad has been on the show twice. Um, Several of the guests that we've had on the show actually were on the show uh, because they reached out to us as listeners of the show. So Taylor Genovese, who's, as I mentioned, was on the show for our Peasants Revolt um, episode. He was a listener of the show for a long time. Chris Saltmarsh, who took part in the COP26 roundup with Vijay Prashad and Adnan, uh, also was a longtime Guerrilla History listener. Manny Ness now listens to the show. Uh, Salvatore has been listening to the show literally since the, the pilot episode came out of the show. Um, who, oh, the next guest that we have coming up, uh, or the, the guest that I have verbal confirmation from, but without a set date on, the Burkina Faso women's development guest. When I first emailed her, the first thing that she said is, uh, oh, yeah, I, I listened to your show. Big fan of it. Really happy to hear from you. And I was like, oh, you know, it's nice to know that our show is kind of cycling into the the realm of the guests that we're actually trying to book the people that do genuinely interesting and useful work that we are taking inspiration from uh the work you know such as it is you know podcast work eh, we, we do a lot of background research and whatnot but um she finds what we do in any case quite useful and so it's very gratifying and validating that what we do is useful to people who we respect tremendously from uh, an intellectual, uh, academic, or even activist basis. So that's really nice. The second part of your question, and I'm sorry for droning on so long on that first part, but the second part was how can we use the connections that we make? How can we use the knowledge that we make on the show in the real world? And I think that that's the key, the key topic here. And this is something that we've been talking about on the show basically since its inception. So our second full episode of the show, as you mentioned, the Vijay Prashad episode, Washington Bullets, was our first full episode. We had the pilot and then we had that one. The second episode was with Halil Caravelli about why Turkey is authoritarian. And one of the things that we kept talking about during that interview, multiple times, as I recall, I haven't listened to the episode in you know, a year at this point, but... As I recall, we kept talking about how the book was written for activists. It was written for activists to understand, and it was written for activists to kind of get the feeling of things that did work and didn't work in that Turkish context. And we think that uh, we have to have this historical analysis. We have to have this historical grounding in order to understand the present, as well as help us understand things that have and haven't worked in past contexts and what the context was that those previous actions did or did not work in, right? Things are not universal. We can't say, yeah, protracted people's war, for example, seems like a, uh, the ideal strategy in the Philippines because of, you know, things that Joma Sison has wrote about. He has a book called Specific Characteristics of Our People's War that was written I believe in the 80s, uh, it's available for, from Foreign Languages Press, and it talks about why they have kind of the ideal setup for a protracted people's war there. That doesn't necessarily mean that the United States or Russia, where I currently am located, are ideally suited historically or so, uh, societally 
for protracted people's war. We have to understand the context in which things happen. We have to take the lessons and we have to then use those to generate ideas and actions that we can take in the future. And the most important thing is not just listening. You know, if you're a listener, for example, uh, Adnan, Brett and I, of course, do more activism than we do recording on the show. That's why we only release a couple episodes a month. Um, we, we all are very big in in-person activism. Uh, but if you're a listener of the show, we absolutely do not want you to just listen to our episode and think, oh, yeah, that was an interesting conversation. I learned one or two things in that in that episode. Uh, you know, I'll turn, tune in again in a couple of weeks when the next episode comes out and uh, I'm doing my part by listening to this. No, that is absolutely not what you do. What you should be doing is if you get something out of our show, and this is, you know, not exclusive to our show. If you don't like our show, you don't have to listen to it. But if you find a show that you do like, let's say in Defense of Liberation, for example, you're listening to it after all right now. If you find something that is interesting and useful from this show, you should not be sequestering that in your brain somewhere. You need to be spreading this information to people who feel like you do, who uh, have that same motivation, that same ideological tendency, that same drive to try to create a better world. We have to first get that information out there to the broader masses. And then when we're able to kind of develop action-based strategies based on what we've learned through analysis, uh, both ideological analysis as well as historical analysis, which are related but distinct, once we do that analysis and we've come up with sort of uh, actions, things that we should do, things that we should at least look at doing, you go to those same people who you've been having these conversations with, you formulate your methods that you're going to take, and then you go out. It can uh, show itself in many ways. Activism, of course, is a very easy one, something that not enough people do. I mean, it's very easy to do activism. You don't have to do you know, anything necessarily crazy right off the bat, but find protests that are around you that are in, in, favor, of, um, in, in favor of causes that you support. Even when I was living in Germany, which is where I was living before here, we would find signs up on street posts about Cuban solidarity, you know, trying to end the illegal blockade by the United States on Cuba. You wouldn't expect to see that in Germany. But when you do, you have to look at that and say, you know, it's not that hard to show up to this rally in, in support of the Cuban people. Uh, and so that's step one. But, you know, these actions can take place. Uh, they can they can. Uh, show up in different ways as well. It's not just like going into the streets and, and doing activism. You can do direct action. You can do uh, many things, you know, underground publication of like revolutionary material. That was something that was very popular in the past uh, to distribute to the masses. Like there's a lot of different routes that you can take up to and including protracted people's war. If that, you know, if you're listening from a context that you've decided that's the strategy that you should take, you know, there's a lot of actions that can be taken. So the, the key here, the thing that you need to come away from this conversation with more so than anything is that we don't just take in this information in, in through our ears, through our headphones or our earbuds or whatever you use. And you put that information into the back of your brain for a conversation that you'll have in five years time. That way, when somebody says, you know, who is that socialist guy that was in charge of Turkey in the 1970s? Uh, you know, you don't just want to pull out the name from that episode that we had with Halil Caravelli on why Turkey is authoritarian. You have to take the lessons of that of that episode and try to use that information to broaden 
popular consciousness of the issues that you find particularly important that were raised and then develop action-based strategies on them. So I think that that's, yeah, my overly long answer to that question. And I apologize once again for having such a long answer to a, a probably a, a much more simple question than I ended up making it. I disagree entirely. I think you did a great job and I really do appreciate you going into depth about that because that's kind of more what I was looking for. I wanted to hear really the length at which you would like people to use this information and how you personally have been able to develop uh, during this time and develop relationships. Um, because, <clears throat> you know, I think as you mentioned, one thing that is clearly an issue is the fact that a majority of people who uh, advocate for certain ideals or uh, have certain politics don't necessarily act upon that. And uh, I think in your recent episode with Emmanuel Ness, he spoke to that quite clearly in his critique of the Western left, where he spoke about how in a lot of cases, we are a not active in our own role and b not supportive of ongoing movements across the world but especially in the global south um, and i think that this is one thing that has become a prominent topic in uh you know the twitterverse and uh left book in other places where uh discourse seems to be stationed quite concretely unfortunately um, but uh, one thing that I think is incredibly important, uh, given the nature of our shows, is the, you know, a deep, a deep need to really do better at becoming connected with uh, not only each other, but also ongoing movements and struggles around the world, and also even in our in own neighborhoods. Um, I, I think of some shows like... Uh, by any means necessary with Jackie Lukeman and Sean Blackman, uh, who uh, always seem to have grassroots organizers on there. Um, how can yourself and I, along with you know listeners and other content creators, do a better job of staying not only up to date and connected with uh, these movements, but also how can we become uh, you know involved? And maybe if you wouldn't mind, uh, what are some difficulties that you often hear that you self yourself have uh, faced or uh, that others have reported in becoming uh, involved in those issues and do not feel bad about going to any length that is why I wanted to ask these questions my friend yeah, sure. And at first, I'll just open up with a shout out for Jackie Lukman, who's a friend and comrade of mine. Uh, I adore Jackie. We've had many conversations together um, over the past year and a half or so at this point. She's a lovely person. Uh, she's a wonderful activist. She's a wonderful uh, champion for, for liberation and for solidarity with oppressed peoples worldwide. Uh, Sean, of course, also is, uh, not to take anything away from Sean Blackman, who uh, is her co-host on By Any Means Necessary, and who also uh, comes across the same way. I just am not personally familiar with, uh, uh, personally kind of connected with him, whereas Jackie and I um, are, are I, I would consider her a friend. I, I really, really appreciate the conversations that I have with her, and uh, I've had a few interviews with her on the David Feldman show, actually, that might be worth 
looking up if you if this is both to you josh as well as to listeners uh if you're if you're a fan of jackie lukeman uh the first time that i talked to her on that show we talked about pan-africanism it was her and her late husband abdus uh lukeman it was a very fun interview and it's very it's 101 level because the show david's show is like middle-aged white progressives and this is not to like bash his audience it's just it's what it is you know middle-aged white progressives who have very little in the in the terms of uh understanding of pan-africanism so we, we took a very like pan, what is pan-africanism 101 for 30 minutes uh it was a very fun conversation nonetheless and uh yeah would highly recommend people check that out if you are wanting to dip your toe into the pan-africanist uh, world, which I recommend that everybody does. I take a lot of inspiration from Pan-Africanist thinkers like Walter Rodney. Um, and then the, we had a, another episode then just after uh, Abdus passed and we talked about his legacy as well as uh, the internal colonial mindset of the United States and how it treats black people in the United States, in particular uh, black men. And we, we tied that into the the situation of her late husband the healthcare system uh with regards to black men so it was a very interesting episode you can find those pretty easily i think if you just google like jackie lukeman david feldman show you should find those two episodes at least on both youtube as well as any podcast feed so yeah just look up jackie lukeman david feldman or jackie lukeman henry hakamaki you know if you can spell my name right uh and you'll find those they're, they're very interesting conversations Anyway, now that we have that overly long preamble out of the way, uh, we should probably turn to the actual question now, uh, which I am kind of stalling on because it slipped my mind, but I'm sure it'll come back in just a second, or maybe you can nudge me. Where were we going with this? So uh, first and foremost, I would like to also uh, shadow your uh, shout out to Jackie Lukeman and to uh, Sean over there by any means necessary i love talking about their content they constantly put out great stuff and as you said they are very involved and the uh ah activism yes that's right yes. <laughs> very involved that's where we were going okay thank you very much and i apologize for my uh lapse of no apologies necessary my friend go on ahead okay so yeah this is a very important question as well i'm very good question josh thank you very much for having these um a very, very important uh, question and a very important discussion to have in terms of how we should be centering activism and how we should be centering liberatory struggle. And there's some there's there's necessity for it, absolutely. But there's also challenges associated with trying to center it. And one of the reasons why it's so challenging to try to center, um, you know, different activist movements is because within the United States particularly, but as well as in most global North countries and in most countries globally at this point, we have very uh, segmented populations in terms of uh, segmented activist movements. So we have the Women's March, for example. You know, nobody disagrees that we need women's liberation, but the Women's March was a very insular event and a very insular movement that didn't try to connect itself to other struggles and didn't try to connect itself to any like sustained organization. We have things like unions in the United States that, you know, that was always the bastion of left-wing movements historically in the United States was, was unions. But 
you know, were unions ever really radical in the United States? We called the AFL-CIO the AFL-CIA for a reason, because they were involved with keeping down workers' movements in the global south. And, uh, you know, over time, they became even more and more uh, driven by corporate interests rather than workers' interests. Um, And then, of course, we have things like the Palestinian uh, liberatory uh, uh, movement in the United States, which I said I was very, that was the thing that I was the most active in within my undergrad years was Palestinian liberation. But again, there's no cohesive group or movement that's behind these these resistance uh, events. So we have small organizations, maybe regional organizations, but there's no, you know, national let's just make up a name, for example, National uh, Palestinian Solidarity Organization that all of these events are coordinated through. If that was the case, it would be very easy to center that and make it applicable for any listener. But for example, within our, uh, within the Palestinian liberation um, movement that I was trying to be active within, it was all operated on the local level. And so that both means that there's a lot of opportunities to interview and talk to and engage with leaders of these movements from all different kinds of places. But it also means that if I bring on somebody from, and I know this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I'll explain in just a second. If I bring on somebody from Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is where I did my undergrad, uh, onto the show to talk about the Palestinian liberation movement, it's going to be very context-specific to that region. On the other hand, if we had a, uh, you know, a vanguard party, if we had a mass proletarian driven party, it would be much easier to connect through that nationwide or at least very large regional um, organization to connect into those movements and to make it applicable to as many people as possible. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to bring on activists as much as possible. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to connect with as many of these movements as we can. Like I said, we we all are active within activist movements in our own local contexts. You know, I, I haven't been as active here in Russia since I've moved here, which has only been a few months ago, um, because the language barrier is a little bit of a problem for me, but I, I'm gonna work on that and engage myself more fully within uh, the movements here. But in Germany, I took part in things. During my undergrad, I took part in all kinds of movements. Uh, you know, my hometown was a little bit difficult because it's uh, very rural. You know, I come from a town that has 5,000 people and is in our plus 26 district. So not exactly these big solidarity movements possible there. But I tried to do things, um, you know, writing letters to the editor in the newspaper, connecting with regional organizations. So these are things that we need to do. But it makes it a little bit difficult when you're trying to run a podcast and you want to make it as applicable to as many people as possible um, to bring on specific members from activist struggle because what they say is in many cases going to be context specific in terms of where they're operating. Um, on the other hand, if you try to bring on somebody who themselves is engaged within the struggle or has a, an academic interest in that struggle and has, you know, academic scholarship on the struggle as well as is uh, active within their local struggle for that issue. Uh, it's a little bit easier. So, you know, this is just another example. Uh, in the last episode that we had with Manny Ness, he said, you know, you need to find a peace organization. 
an anti-war organization. Wherever you are, whatever the anti-war organization is, join it. You know, there's a lot of uh, organizations that are anti-war that operate nationally, but again, they're kind of divided, they're segmented. But you have to get within those uh, movements, you have to ingrain yourself within those movements, and then the conversations that you start to have within those movements will give you ideas of how you want to further the discourse of those movements, even if they're a bit segmented and divided. So when we have conversations about uh, how you know, uh, activists should act against authoritarianism, just going back to that Turkish context, um, you, you know, there's no, there's no anti-authoritarian organization like leader that you can bring on. But you can bring on somebody who has studied anti-authoritarianism and uh, you can talk about the activism that they do as well as the scholarship that they've done on it. So kind of taking that dual track, I think, is a little bit uh, more useful, at least when you're talking about movements that aren't, uh, you know, nationwide, at least. You know, it's not like you can just say, hey, a communist party, you know, you're operating nationwide. Who's, uh, you know, a state party representative or something like that, uh, not like House of Representatives, but in terms of representative from the party that we can talk to about what the party is doing uh, as a national entity. Most of the movements that we have going on where we're trying to center activism don't have that kind of uh, that kind of institutional or party-based backing. And that's, you know, a, a failing of sorts. That was something that we raised in our first conversation with Manny Ness about his a book organizing insurgency where we need to have these large proletarian based parties where we can kind of coalesce uh, behind that can act as an ideological anchor that are you know uh, there to kind of hold down the fort as the movements branch off from it so yeah I don't know if that was like a sufficient answer to what you were trying to drive at but that's at least my first attempt at it well, I really appreciate all you had to say, my friend, and I really do think that it was of great value, um, especially for folks who, you know, either engage in the content from a creation standpoint or from a uh, listener standpoint. I think we all could, uh, you know, learn to involve ourselves more in very important issues like uh I guess to think of a few off the top of my head, there's, uh, I believe it's the No Cold War campaign uh, to stop the ongoing uh, fanning of the flames of uh, militarization against China. Um, there's a lot of issues involving the U.S.'s want to engage militarily with Russia. Um, there are a lot of wants for uh, states like Israel and Turkey and plenty of other uh, nations across the world to pursue their interests in uh, surrounding regions, which is leading to a huge increase in uh, displaced people, leading to a huge increase in a uh, ever-growing migrant population that is, you know, millions upon billions of people who have no home, who have no land, <clears throat> to call their own, who have no shelter, and who are attacked violently. You can think of um, folks in Eastern Europe who are fleeing from persecution and war in Western Asia. You can think of the 
Haitian migrants here in the United States who, uh, in a recent ruling, uh, will not be uh, seeing their attackers, the uh, uh, the Border Patrol police who attacked Haitian migrants with whips, uh, which was reminiscent of the true history of the United States with um, slavery. Uh, all of these things require active movements, and some of these things have ongoing movements that you can join, that you can become advocates for, that you can be uh, passing information around, that you can be simply, you know, going to meetings for. Um, a lot of people struggle with uh, things like uh, the necessity to work, um, the ne necessity to pay their bills, the necessity for, you know, safety, um, whether that be for uh, COVID reasons or, uh, you know, just the rise of the far right uh, in the United States and the West generally. Um, all of these things complicate the issue. And I think that folks still need to find ways to be involved that they can uh, do that will, uh, in, in a lot of cases, we have to look for organizations and movements that are not necessarily just posturing, um, but, uh, you know, explicitly taking uh, steps to further the developments of these struggles to improve material conditions. You mentioned things like direct action. Um, one thing that I mention uh, commonly is a, a very easy way to begin organizing our neighborhoods and our community is through things like community gardens, community fridges, and other forms of uh, food uh, dispersal, especially during COVID when a lot of people who are elderly, who are disabled, who are just, you know, uh, plainly incapable of acquiring these things, they need folks to be able to provide this for them. And as the United States has shown, it will not be them. Um, so in this case, we can look to countries like Cuba, um, like Venezuela, like Nicaragua, like China, and plenty of others like Vietnam, who have taken the steps to uh, make sure that their countries are, or their people in their countries are taken care of, they are fed, they are properly housed, and uh, especially that they are protected against this virus. And although that is to <clears throat> varying degrees, you know, uh, successful, it ultimately depends in a lot of cases on things like uh, whether these countries can access the resources necessary to do this. Like, for example, in Cuba, uh, when vaccines had been uh, developed uh, in a uh, theoretical uh, fashion by uh, the, you know, World Health Organization through different uh, developments of SARS vaccines because of the uh, tendency for uh, those types of uh, epidemics to happen, such as in Canada, in the early 2010s and uh, especially in the global south, um, Cuba had the scientific and even, uh, you know, you might say productive capabilities in some cases to develop the vaccine. However, they did not have the resources necessary to do so because of the ongoing embargo by the U.S. on uh, the Cuban country. And uh, this is one movement that, you know, you can never... Uh, say has enough uh, participants. And so one thing that I would advocate for is folks right now, especially as uh, Cuba has opened up its tourism and as, uh, you know, the world is experiencing the surging numbers from the Omicron variant, I think that 
now is one of the most important times, if there has ever been one, to involve yourself in the struggle to end the embargo on Cuba, to allow the Cuban revolution to continue, and to especially uh, <clears throat> call out the United States, for example, in a recent uh, bill where they had given, I believe it was $2.7 million to the uh, main organization down there in Miami where uh, different Cuban uh, uh, exiles and uh, uh, immigrants have uh, formed different, uh, you know, communities and organizations to stand against the Cuban revolution. Uh, the I believe it was the Biden administration who had, uh, had uh, allowed this uh, $2.7 million to be transferred there. But this is not the first time uh, that something like this has happened as Vijay Prashad talked about in his book, uh, Washington Bullets, as uh, I'm reading this one book I keep mentioning to folks, it's called uh, OSS, The Secret History of the U uh, America's First uh, Central Intelligence Agency by R. Harris Smith. Uh, it's been really interesting to learn about the ways in which the uh, COI, or what eventually became the OSS, and it also goes through the FBI and CIA's early uh, foundations, how incredibly involved they are in all kinds of different, uh, you know, resistance movements uh, across the world, and really how involved the U.S. capitalist imperialist machine is in the destabilization and the uh, exploitation of the awful circumstances that folks all across the world are suffering. Um, so in, you know, kind of speaking about this, there's two questions uh, that I really want to hit on. And then I figure we're at about 55 minutes. We can probably close out after those. I want to skip to the second one first because I think it applies better. And then maybe we finish with the other. But um in speaking about, you know, ongoing movements and how we must be involved in joining organizations to uh, advocate for these movements and others, other, uh, you know, forms of involvement, uh, what are some of the locations, might I ask, across the world that you think people ought to be paying attention to right now? And uh, how is it that we in the West especially here in the U.S. empire where I am, uh, how can we really show solidarity to ongoing movements? And before you answer, I might add here that some examples to think of for folks that you don't necessarily need to hit on, maybe you can come up with others yourself, but there are examples of, for, you know, again, Cuba sending soldiers to help fight with uh, uh, revolutionary and resistance movements against colonialism and imperialism, as well as doctors. And for example, just recently, they just sent, I believe it was 246,000 vaccines worldwide. Uh, you also have the ongoing Nicaraguan delegations through the Friends of ATC, as well as during Hugo Chavez's, uh, you know, time as uh, the leader of Venezuela. Uh, where the country would sell low-priced uh, oil to poor and rural areas within the United States. And maybe finally, also, folks might think about how uh, organizations like the CPUSA and plenty of others worldwide 
have sent students and other solidarity workers to places like China, Russia, uh, you know, Bolivia, Nicaragua, and plenty of other places. But uh, maybe talk about some historical examples and possibly how folks can get involved in solidarity work and uh, building together uh, to develop these struggles further. Yeah, so instead of focusing on historical uh, examples, I'm going to focus on things that we should be doing now. Because if you want to look at historical examples of uh, of struggles that we should be supporting, I, I mean, it's pretty obvious that basically anybody that the U.S. was opposed to was was, you know, at least if it was a, a movement of people that they were opposed to coming in power, it was that was probably somebody that we should have supported. Um, that's not a very interesting conversation to have right now. We talk about a lot of these individual contexts in great depth on guerrilla history, but I want to look at the here and now for a bit. So you asked basically two things. Where should we be looking to have solidarity and what should we do to have solidarity with them? And I'm going to take the second part of that first because it's a very universal point. The first thing that we need to do, really, really need to do, is become firm, 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 firm anti-imperialists. That is critical, absolutely critical. Um, as you said, there's a lot of people in the Western left, and this is something, I mean, we harped on the Western left for about two hours between the two episodes that we did with Manny Ness that both touched on this. We have a lot of people that will criticize capitalism in the abstract within the Western quote-unquote left, but the anti-imperialist strain within them is often missing. And uh, this is something that we really need to foster is a, a true anti-imperialist movement where we see, hey, this is a worker struggle. This is a proletarian mass struggle in country X. Obviously, the hyper-capitalist, neo-fascistic government of the United States is going to oppose that. And we know that they have many methods of opposing that. We should probably make sure that it's a little bit harder for the U.S. government to actually make it more difficult for those people in material reality. So joining things like peace organizations, anti-imperial organizations, getting the word out. So I, I suggest writing letters to the editors of your local newspapers. They're not that hard to write. And many local newspapers actually will print them. So like in big in big media markets, maybe not as many actually make it in there, but for example, in my hometown, like I said, we've got 5,000 people. If I write a letter to the editor, it's published the next day because there's not that many people that are writing into the, you know, the daily news. Uh, and, but people do read it. You know, the older people in the community do read it. I had a letter to the editor published about when Biden was uh, delaying the planned withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. Uh, I took up the call from uh, Black Alliance for Peace uh, utilized their form letter, made some tweaks to it, and had that published in my local newspaper. Sure enough, I had some of the, you know, I'm not in contact with very many people from my hometown anymore, but I had some people get in contact with me like, oh, I saw your letter to the editor in the newspaper. I mean, that's a very small and very simple thing that we can be doing, not just letters to the editor, but trying to get the word out there in general through whatever means are possible for you that we need to get this anti-imperialist uh, kind of ideology more deeply ingrained within the left and then more deeply ingrained within the populace more generally. 
so, you know, do things like write letters to the editor, have conversations with your, you know, your uncle that's not so crazy that he disowns the family because they voted for a Democrat. Like, find an uncle that's moderately reasonable and talk about why we need to be anti-imperialist. Talk to your high school friends that you still are in contact with about why they need to be anti-imperialist. Getting involved in the anti-imperialist uh, struggle is is primary to any other action that we will take because if we see a specific uh, country context that is waging uh, a struggle, a workers' struggle, uh, to try to come to liberation within their own country, unless we already have that anti-imperialist thought within our context, any action that we would like to take within that specific context will be impossible because we won't have fostered that ideological line beforehand within the, the people of the country that we're operating in, you know, United States, for example. So that's the first thing that we need to do. Everything else then is country specific. We need to look at what they need to succeed in their movement. But first things first, push anti-imperialism at every and any opportunity. In terms of places that we should be looking at, uh, you mentioned Cuba several times. I think that we always need to foreground the, the Cuban experience. They are you know, facing such difficulties because of what the U.S. imposes on them. And despite that, they have achieved so many successes. It's really unbelievable. And Cuba is actually one of the three case studies that we talked about in uh, this upcoming episode of Guerrilla History on socialist states and the environment. And of the, the three main case studies, which, you know, pretty obviously are the, the Soviet Union, China, and Cuba, uh, Cuba is just head and shoulders above everybody, state socialist, capitalist, everybody, in terms of their uh, beneficial impact on the environment. Really incredible. So uh, Cuba is always one that we have to throw out there right away. I think that, um, you know, a lot of people in the anti-imperialist movement in the West, so, you know, after I, I finished bashing the, the Western left for not being anti-imperialist, it's not to say that there aren't anti-imperialist individuals within the West, you know, you, me, until I moved to Russia, because I guess I'm technically not in the West anymore. But, you know, I, I know people that are in the West that are firm anti-imperialists. Look at a lot of the guests on guerrilla history, you know, many anti-imperialists there, and many of them are based in the West. But we uh, that are anti-imperialists within the West, when we think about these movements, that the, the kind of movements that you and I are talking about, we typically think about the same countries all the time that we should be protecting from American imperialism, capitalist imperialism more generally, Cuba, uh, Venezuela, Bolivia, you know, we have many of these, China to some extent, yeah, you know, a little bit debatable there, depending on what ideological tendency you come from, but still, you, you, the point remains, um, regardless of your ideological tendency, I think that there's, you know, no disagreement that we should be not allowing American imperialism to influence China. But I think that we almost still have a, like, a, a chauvinistic attitude uh, and I'm not just insulting the listeners because I enjoy insulting the Western left, but when we look at movements that we should be keeping an eye towards, we still are looking at these places that are, yeah, global south, like Bolivia, Venezuela. Yeah, they're the global south, but they're places that the United States has direct interest in and that they're relatively close by. And uh, yeah, you know, their countries are more cohesive, let's say. 
uh, and they've already had movements that have been successful there. I think that what we should be trying to bring more to the forefront is areas that have not had these movements yet, at least successful movements yet, but which the, the potential is there for. So the Philippines, for example, we had this long conversation with Joe Masison, uh, which included a conversation about the potential for actual change in the Philippines. And he says, yeah, maybe it won't happen in my lifetime, but it'll happen. You know, a successful revolution in the Philippines will happen. We see uh, many failures in the Philippines. We also see many successes, but it's something that nobody in the West seems to talk about. Like, unless you're a Maoist, um, you generally don't talk about the Communist Party of the Philippines. You don't talk about the, the NPA, uh, the, the New People's Army. Um, so for whatever reason, even though the Philippines have been waging this uh, communist guerrilla insurgency for decades and decades and decades now, it's completely absent from the discussion of movements that we should be supporting from the West. We also have places uh, in, for example, this is another uh, example of somebody who I might try to, that I am trying to get onto guerrilla history in the, in the future, South Africa. South Africa is actually a fairly wealthy country. Like, uh, you know, it, by African standards, it's incredibly wealthy, but even by global standards, South Africa is much more wealthy than a lot of people assume. The problem is, is that South Africa also has the highest levels of inequality basically anywhere. If you look at the Gini coefficients, uh, I think it's pronounced Gini, but I think anyway, if you look at the Gini coefficients, which uh, look at economic inequality within a country, South Africa is always just like number one or right around it. They're right up there with the most unequal, uh, unequal countries in the world economically. But we know that there is movement that is possible within South Africa. Look at the anti-apartheid movement and how successful it was. I mean, it took down a white nationalist apartheid uh, government relatively recently, like within living memory. Uh, and you don't have to be super old to remember that. But we also have movements operating within South Africa that there's genuine potential in. So this gets to the point of, you know, who I'm, who I'm trying to bring on to guerrilla history. The largest union in all of Africa, the largest single union, not you know conglomerate of unions, but the largest single union in all of Africa, not just South Africa, all of Africa, is the metal workers union in South Africa. And their leader of the union is a committed Marxist-Leninist. And the movement within that union is to try to push for an end to this neoliberal regime that's currently governing South Africa and has for a very long time. They're protesting against, uh, you know, the, the capitalist exploitation of the workers, income inequality, uh, the treatment of the workers within their workplaces, as well as treatment of workers outside of the, the, the confines of their own union's, you know, uh, view or, or, or uh, purview. So that's a very interesting movement that we can look at. I mean, it's a huge, huge organization that's led by a Marxist-Leninist that is pushing for um, you know, very, very progressive, if not outright socialist change within the country. They have an alliance with a brand new socialist political party because the other existing political parties within South Africa all have been kind of subsumed by capital at this point, even the, you know, nominative left parties uh, in South Africa. So that's another country that we can look at 
Nobody talks about it. Nobody knows that the biggest union in all of Africa is led by a Marxist-Leninist. Nobody knows that they're allied to a, a, a socialist slash communist party within the country. But if they did, perhaps we could start raising awareness about that. Perhaps we can figure out, hey, what can we do from where we are to push for uh, success of that movement? But until we even raise the fact that they exist, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know. So, uh, you know, uh, in terms of specific places to look, obviously, there's a lot of places that we can look. And we named several of them. There's all those, those Latin American countries. Uh, you know, Peru had elections that looked uh, promising when Castillo came into power, although he's been very disappointing since he's been in power. Um, but we know that the sentiment is present there, at least. At least anti-Fujimori sentiment is there. Uh, we know in Chile that they just voted in for, you know, a social Democrat. Yeah, he's not he's not a socialist. But again, sentiment is starting to swing in that direction. So in Latin America, there's a lot of potential in sub-Saharan Africa. There's a lot of potential in places like South Africa. There's a lot of potential. We never hear about any of those places. We don't hear about the Philippines. We don't hear. So. In terms of where we should be looking, we need to take an anti-imperialist stance everywhere, but we also need to look at where the potential is present within the world. And that's something that, you know, I'm trying to dig into myself, so I don't want to speak definitively beyond the few countries that I've already stated, because those are countries that I've looked up the specific context of and done some research into myself. Um, oh, India is another one. I think that there's real potential in India. Not right now. I, I think that the forces of... Uh, BJP and the RSS within India in the very near term are, are pretty well entrenched. But I also think that there's some sentiment within India that could be harnessed if it was, uh, you know, properly uh, supported from both within India, if it was properly addressed to the masses and if it was properly supported from people outside of India. Um, there's a lot of cases, though, you know, and like I said, I've, I've researched some of them. I try to go really, really in depth with my research on these places. So I don't want to just start naming out country after country after country that I think that there's some promise in, but haven't done the requisite research on to speak definitively on. But this is something that we need to do. This is what you, the listeners, can do when you go onto your computer next time. Look up, you know, hey, I wonder if there's any sort of movement in country X, you know, I, I don't know. Just <laughs> pick a country off the top of your head, Nepal. And then you look up and you realize, oh, wait, Nepal already has a communist government. Okay, um, you know, maybe I don't agree with some of the actions that the government of Nepal has taken, which, of course, is going to always be the case. Nobody agrees with everything that's done. But now, you know, okay, Nepal, maybe we should, uh, you know, even if we're not supporting that specific party of the communist party, because there's several branches of it in Nepal, um, even if I'm not supporting that specific one, we should protect Nepal from uh, capitalist interference and imperialist interference coming from outside. So then you move on to the next country. I'm going to look up, I don't know, just pick a country out of the top of your head, you know, Mongolia. I don't know. Look up what's going on in Mongolia. Look at what sort of workers unrest there is. Look at the conditions that are being imposed on people. Look at what sort of uh, movements there are within the country. Look at the organizations that are present within the country, both in terms of party as well as worker organizations like unions, for example. You know, not all unions in the world are as feeble as the ones in the U.S. Um, but start to do that research for yourself. You know, you don't need me to tell you this country, this country, this country, and this country are the only countries that we have 
the potential for successful movements. And no, I know a few countries that I'm keeping my eye on very closely. And I also am undergoing this process of looking into more and more countries to see whether or not the possibility is close or whether it's something that has to be built over a long period of time. So that's, yeah, that that's that. So <clears throat> as, uh, as you have with all the questions you gave, folks a lot to uh, look into and that's awesome my friend I really appreciate that because you know as you were speaking I, I, I took down some notes of some countries that I've read about on uh, people's dispatch news click uh, Kawasachin uh, news uh, you recently had uh, Ali Vargas on um, and uh, well I guess not very recently but anyways um, looking into uh, a lot of countries that are uh, as you said uh, in, uh, enduring ongoing movements it's important to really do a lot of study because uh, as has been the case in uh, many countries across the, the world there are things like color revolutions as well as you know just complicated issues that folks from outside of the context really can't just look at and immediately decide that it is of this or that character it takes a lot of time a lot of study and uh hopefully as folks uh take what we've talked about to this point seriously um it, it also takes involvement uh some struggles that i would say that <clears throat> some people ought to look into finding ways to get involved especially here in the u.s empire uh, is, uh, for example, the struggles against the ongoing Line 3, Line 5, and other pipelines that are being put in by huge oil production companies under the nose of a supposedly uh, environmentally friendly uh, administration, um, as well as uh, just north of us in uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, territory, the struggles against the RCMP, uh, which are ongoing and are, uh, you know, ultimately putting the lives of indigenous and First Nation people uh, yet again uh, in, you know, critical condition. And so uh, that as well as the uh, struggle in Hawaii against uh, the uh, spill at Red Hill and just the uh, imperialism that we see uh, continuing there, as well as, as you mentioned, in the Philippines. Um, I forget who it was. I think it was actually Comrade Joma himself who mentioned that uh, the NPA may or may not be in need of uh, engineers and uh, folks who know how to manufacture and produce uh, weaponry. And, you know, if only there was something that people could do about that, that would really be incredible. But, you know, we don't advertise for any sort of uh, violent behavior uh, on this show, that's for sure. But, yeah, uh, just anyways. To, but just to butt in there for one second, you're right. So that far. was in the episode that he did with us. Uh, we asked him what people in the in the global north can do to aid the the struggle within the Philippines, and that was one of the examples that he gave. Is you know, if you're an engineer and you know how to you know perhaps make weapons, perhaps you could perhaps send them perhaps our way, so that perhaps we could use them within our context. Uh, very interesting conversation. Um, but yeah, you're right. That was exactly what he said, was that, you know, engineers, people that have expertise in making weapons and whatnot, that's just something that you could consider doing, at least theoretically, right? You know, in, in a theoretical context, wink, wink. But yeah, just wanted to let the listeners know. If you want to find that, 
answer. That was in the episode that we did with him. That's that's what I was thinking. Awesome. Uh, and other movements, you know, for example, like you mentioned in South Africa, I would also like folks to look into the ongoing, uh, what is called the, uh, in English, the shack dwellers movement, uh, which is of a lot of uh, rural, exploited and oppressed people who are uh, similarly to what the MST is doing in Brazil and what is happened historically in many other countries, uh, you know, taking over land, building shelter, and fighting against the reactionary state that tries to take it back, similar to what the MPA is doing and plenty of others uh, across the world are doing. Um, to kind of finish us out on uh, maybe uh, a, a lighter note, not that that's necessary, but I think it might be enjoyable to ask you, um, Maybe what are some, uh, just to shift here, what are some book recommendations uh, that you may or, you know, may not have about, uh, you know, say maybe some for beginners, maybe some for uh, folks more focused on praxis, uh, and then maybe also some that are more theoretical and uh, challenging works that you think people ought to check out? Yeah, I guess the first book recommendation I'll give is this one's for you since you mentioned uh, that South African shack uh, dwellers. There's a book that I believe it just came out last year, like early last year, called Amakomiti, Grassroots Democracy in South African Shack Settlements by Trevor Nguane, which is a, a he's a South African scholar who... Uh, also, I will be trying to get onto guerrilla history, perhaps to talk about this book or some of the other work that he does. He's good friends with Manny Ness. Surprise, surprise. He's been the common thread within this conversation. But uh, yeah, if you're interested more in uh, the shack settlements in South Africa, that book is just under a year old at this point. So something for listeners to look into. In terms of other things that they can, they can look at, um, well, first and foremost, you can go to the Guerrilla History podcast feed and look at the guests that we've interviewed on there. Many, many of the guests, I would say most of the guests, have at least one book uh, that they've published. And many of them, the episode is about that book. Some of the guests have you know, many, many books. Uh, those books are all worth looking into. So you've mentioned Prashad's Washington Bullets. I think that that's a, a good starting point if somebody wants to look into anti-imperialism and how U.S. imperialism has impacted people globally. We have an episode with Vijay about that. About that. Um, yeah, I mentioned why Turkey is authoritarian. You can, of course, look up that book. Um, what else did we have? How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs with Professor Elizabeth Thompson. Quite interesting. Uh, 1920 era uh, history, uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing. Uh, Gerald Horn. I highly recommend anything that Gerald Horn has written, but particularly he has three books that are tied together. So The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, and The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. So you get about a three-century span of time that really tries to tie in uh, all of these threads and uh, really, really fascinating work. But of course, Gerald Horn has written like 
46 books or something like that at this point. So uh, you can pick up just about anything by Gerald and, and you'll have something fantastic. Uh, of course, we've had Alex Avina on the show. He talked about peasant gorillas and, and Mexico's countryside. His book is called Specters of Revolution. If you can find it, that one's a little bit harder to find than Gerald Horn's books. But if you can find it, it's definitely worth picking up. Um, yeah, and then a, a lot of our books that we've talked about on the show are very context-specific. So um, if you're interested in Myanmar, for example, we had an episode with Carlos Sardinia Galache talking about his book, um, the Burmese Labyrinth, a history of the Rohingya tragedy. So it takes you through the history of Myanmar slash Burma, and then also takes a look at the Rohingya, let's just call it what it is, genocide uh, from a few years ago. And you know the vestiges of that are still with us today. So if you're interested in any specific contexts, uh, we do have books available on things like that. But in terms of book recommendations for absolute beginners who want to start looking into things like this, but you know don't have a specific like country context that they want to research right away. Um, I'm just looking back at my bookshelf now. Uh, I can recommend Comrade Joma's Basic Principles of Marxism-Leninism, a primer. It, it goes over the basics of uh, political economy. It goes over the basics of imperialism. It talks about the theories of Marx, the theories of Lenin, a little bit from uh, Mao at the very end of the book. But, uh, you know, it, it's a very useful book and it's like 100 pages long or something like that. And it's written for the every person. So if you are interested in, you know, learning about a little bit more communist theory, that would be a very easy way to dip your toe into it. Much easier than reading you know, Marx himself, for example. Um, we can also talk about things like, uh, oh, uh, a decolonial feminism is a book that we that I did a crossover episode of with uh, Alison Escalante of the uh, Red Menace podcast. So you can find that on the Red Menace feed and Guerrilla History feed. And it was uh, written by Francoise Vergez. Fantastic book. One of the best books I read last year. Which, uh, yeah, it takes a very anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, decolonial perspective on feminism, which those perspectives often are lacking when we look at feminist movements, both within the United States as well as globally. They take uh, the, the gender question as an insular uh, component as opposed to trying to tie it into broader movements. So that's something that I also can highly recommend. Um, how Europe is underdeveloping Africa, Walter Rodney. I mentioned that people should start looking at um, more pan-African thinkers. Uh, that, that's the place to start. Actually, either, either how Europe underdeveloped Africa or The Groundings with My Brothers, which is also by Walter Rodney. Those two books really in tandem will give you a very good idea of um, what pan-African thought is <laughs> excuse me, and, and uh, why we should be looking more into it. I mean, it's very fascinating uh, reading, very important. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'll just name a few more because uh, I, I love books. I read them all the time. Uh, we've talked about Cuba. I think that reading some primary documents from Cuba is quite useful. So you can pretty easily find the declarations of Havana, which were kind of the founding documents of the revolutionary government of Cuba. There was two of them. Um, you can get 
physical copies. You can find them online. They're very fun to read and they're pretty short. So if you're interested in Cuba as well as what they were trying to found that country on, that's definitely a way that you can go. Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, I've got a lot more that I can say, but, uh, you know, I guess I'll close there for now because most of my other recommendations are very context specific. Like if you're looking for, oh, I guess I'll name one other one, uh, A People's Green New Deal by Max Isle. I think that that is the best book written on uh, climate politics with an anti-imperialist and non-global North chauvinistic focus. I really think that that's a critically important book. So you can check that out. I've interviewed Max before on the David Feldman show. He's a friend of mine. Very, very nice guy. Uh, at least if you're, you know, not an imperialist, if you're an imperialist, he's not very nice to you, but he shouldn't be. So, uh, and Manny Ness, uh, I think more people need to check out Manny Ness's books. They're not as popular as they should be. I think that if you pick up some of them, like organizing insurgency, Southern insurgency, um, he's got, like I said, five books coming out this year, including one that I'm very excited to get my hands on, which is an edited volume. So a bunch of contributors. It's called Sanctions as a War. And I've got a lot of things planned for that book, uh, guerrilla history related for the upcoming year or so. A bunch of the contributors to that book are people that I was looking at bringing on for other purposes, but we can kind of tie their contribution to that work, to their other work that I was previously looking at. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, there's too many books for me to think of off the top of my head. But yeah, I, one thing that I recommend listeners to do is um, since everybody has a different taste of, of what you're interested in, what you can also do is look at publishers. So this is not the best strategy in the world because, I mean, there's genuinely amazing books that come out from just about every publisher in the world. But uh, there's a few publishers that they put out things that are ideologically okay to ideologically fantastic. And, you know, very little that's like ideological garbage. Then it's just a matter of finding what titles are of interest to you. So foreign languages press, if you're... Um, a Marxist-Leninist or a Marxist-Leninist Maoist, they have the Maoist perspective, but they publish a lot of um, uh, historical texts from a Marxist-Leninist perspective. So they've got Lenin, they've got Stalin, um, etc. on their site. And you can read those all for free in PDF versions, or you can get the physical versions for very free, uh, for very cheap, sorry. Uh, also, they have audiobooks. You can listen to them. I recently... Uh, recorded the audiobook for Fedai Guerrilla Speak on armed struggle in Iran. So if you are interested in, yeah, Marxist-Leninist guerrillas in Iran and you don't hate my voice, which I do, but maybe you don't, uh, you can listen to me read that book uh, on their podcast feeds. You can check out Pluto Press. Pluto Press has a very wide ideological basis, everything from uh, like social Democrats writing for it to committed Marxist-Leninists and everything in between. So, you know, maybe a little bit more background research on who's writing the book is necessary for you, but they have so many interesting books on interesting topics um, that you should really check that out. Um, Verso is hit and miss for me. They've got a lot of really interesting books on there, but they also have a lot of liberal stuff. <laughs> and Haymarket also 
has some really fantastic books, but they are very wedded to Trotskyism. So if you are looking for like historical analysis of something and you don't mind that the author is a Trotskyist, which, you know, you shouldn't tune out somebody just because of their ideological tendency if they've done the scholarship. Um, they're also, they also have some very useful titles. But uh, from a more ideological perspective, if you're trying to look at like ideological analysis of the books, they, they take a very committed Trotskyist line. So something to keep in the back of your mind. But yeah, I, I like to look at the individual publishers as well. Anyway, that was way longer than I needed to make it. But there you go. Again, I would like to stress that I ask these questions because I want to hear exactly what you have on your mind. So I'm happy to hear just about all that. Because listen, if you think you just spammed a bunch of books, I'm about to spam a bunch of books as well. I never got to do a end of 2021, what books I read and what books I'm looking forward to reading. So instead of doing that as a separate episode, I'm going to use this opportunity to just list off a bunch of books that I have in my hand right now, if that's okay with you. Yeah, go go right ahead. Yeah, don't don't need my permission. It's your show. Well, I just wanted to make sure you weren't going to be annoyed by it or had to go anywhere. But okay, so real quick, I recently got we're talking about foreign language press. I recently got a few different things. Um, I got my hands on the uh, selected works of Ho Chi Minh, volume one. I got uh, this is another one that I think uh, for folks who are beginners, this would be a good primer, even though it's not uh, often seen as as applicable to the times. I think it's good as a basis to understand uh, capitalism and how it works. Uh, I got uh, wage labor and capital and also wages, price and profit from foreign language press. I also got uh, the proletarian revolution and the renegade Kautsky by Lenin as well as a bunch of others by Lenin, like the State and Revolution and uh, left-wing communism and infantile disorder. But some uh, different works that I got that I think are uh, really interesting and I've either read them or look forward to reading them is uh, recently out, uh, edited by uh, Manolo de los Santos and Vijay Prashad, uh, Comrade of the Revolution, selected speeches of Fidel Castro. You were speaking about the uh, primary documents from um, uh, Cuba. This is a, another great one, reading the speeches of some of the leaders of the Cuban Revolution. This is out from leftward books, um, as well as uh, speaking of Verso, I just got this book by uh, Stella Dodzi called A Kick in the Belly. Uh, women, Slavery, and Resistance. Um, I'm looking forward to reading this. It seems very interesting. Um, and for uh, context in uh, connection to this, another uh, short read that I recently just checked out uh, that I think a lot of people, especially in America, need to read is uh, by Ida B. Wells. Um, it's on lynching. Um uh, for folks who don't know, Ida B. Wells traveled around the country and uh, uh, kept uh, track of ongoing lynch mobs that were happening all over the country and wrote a piece on it, which I think uh, is really important, especially given the recent conviction of the murderers of Ahmed Arbery. 
to remember the history and the ongoing uh, present condition of the United States. Uh, for a more enjoyable and relaxing read, I really would stress that people read um, The Motorcycle Diaries by uh, Che Guevara. I cruised through this. Uh, I never knew uh, until I read this what a beautiful writer Che really was. Um, he also has the Bolivian Diaries, which isn't uh, necessarily as interesting, um, but it is still a fantastic read. Uh, and then just to list off a few more real quick, because I have them right here in front of me, I would uh, stress that folks want to check out, uh, you mentioned Gerald Horn. Uh, I think uh, his new book that's coming out about the history of Texas and uh, its connection to white supremacism and fascism, which I can't quite remember the name of, so help me out if you know it. But if not, I'll move on to some other books that I have. Uh, yeah, so, sorry, I was trying to uh, unmute myself. I don't remember the name of the book off the top of my head, but I do know that we talked about it pretty extensively on the last time that he was on Guerrilla History. I think it might have been, uh, never mind, I don't want to speak onto the name because I'll get it wrong, but uh, you can find the, the live stream episode that we did with Gerald Horn. We talked probably 30 or 40 minutes about uh, that upcoming book on Texas and the roots of white supremacy within the United States. Yeah, so be on the lookout for that because that looks very interesting. And then I'm just going to just rapid, quick list off some books and then maybe we'll tidy up here. So um, some that I've read or looking forward to reading is uh, Patriots, Traitors, and Empires, uh, The Story of Korea's Struggle for Freedom, um, also, uh, Hitler's American model, uh, the United States and the making of Nazi race law. Kwame That's a fantastic book. Might I add, uh, Hitler's American model. My girlfriend and I read that together. She's looking at me right now and she just went, Ooh, so she also agrees that that, that was a very good book. Um, so yeah, if you have, I, I, you said you're going to read it, right? This one I've read, I would stress that folks try their best to get through the fact that this guy very much uh, keeps stressing the fact that the Nazis didn't just copy it, they, they borrowed from it. It seems like he really doesn't want to openly admit that the United States was as prominent of an influence on the uh, Nazis uh, and the movement in Germany in general. Uh, but it's still a fantastic historical text to see all the ways in which, in fact, it, it wasn't just a simple idea of like, oh, the Americans also don't, uh, you know, want to live with uh, among different folks from different nationalities and different ethnicities. So uh, we like them. It was like, uh, like, for example, one of the uh, authors of the race laws uh, that really began the push for the termination of uh, different uh, ethnic and national minorities. Um, it was uh, a, a, an author of that who went to the University of Arkansas Law School and actually studied the history of lynching, of Jim Crow law, of immigration, and all different forms of oppression by white folks against non-white folks in this country. Um, and, uh, it, it's just a really like 
it, it's it's something that a lot of people I think should read to really understand the depth and character of the connection between these two different projects. And if I may quickly, you mentioned that the the author doesn't just outright say these things. As, as you said, you have to keep that in mind. Uh, and I'll just add on. The guy is an Ivy League law professor. I believe he's a professor at Yale. So yeah. he, when he publishes this book, is going to write things in a way that, you know, there's not going to be back. I think that it goes without saying. When you're a law school professor, you're going to write things in a way that are not going to discredit you, right? So you're always going to hedge. Even if you believe something very strongly, you're always going to hedge the language when it's published. So worth keeping in mind. But as you mentioned, the actual information in the book really does point right at that, though he doesn't explicitly state it. And my girlfriend, just as an aside for the listeners, she is telling me to let you know that you need to take notes when you take when you read this book because it's Fuck a very yes, you do. it's a very you useful really book do. but you need to remember the details if you want to use it in arguments and she's absolutely right my my i have i only have the digital copy of it unfortunately but yeah my thing is like <laughs> highlighted to kingdom come it's it's really uh yeah highlighted everywhere and i know that hers is is exactly the same so uh make sure that you, you highlight that book really heavily most definitely. Yes. Uh, two things with that finishing up and then going to the other books. One, uh, like uh, if if folks want to find free digital copies of books, one thing that they definitely shouldn't do because we could not advise them to do so is go on their web browser and type into the URL uh, www.b-ok dot com do not do that because it is illegal and that would be pirating and you should not do that so do not do that anyways um i also have a digital copy of this book and it's highlighted and uh one thing recently that i was able to do was i was able to use it and connect it to a speech that michael parenti gave about the connections between capitalism and fascism to talk about the history of the u.s settler colonial project and um how it's uh you know the the capitalists really building and developing is similar to how like you know hitler's dusseldorf conference and how uh fascists in italy and spain and other countries have really used the sentiments and the money of capitalists to ultimately build their uh projects and uh that is no different here in the united states so Speaking of that, I would like to also yet again recommend this book, which I can't stress enough, you also have to take extensive notes on. It is OSS, The Secret History of America's First Central Intelligence Agency by R. Harris Smith, who was a former research uh, analysis for the Central Intelligence Agency. You spoke about the fact that James Q. Whitman is uh, from Yale. Yale, folks might know, is uh, quite involved with the CIA and also the OSS and has provided quite a few agents across the world to cause destabilization and to support uh, uh, different resistance movements, which has led to, you know, all kinds of uh, dastardly destruction at the behest of U.S. imperialism. Another book that I would like folks to read, as I'm going to read it, is... Uh, I've never heard of this before. I picked it up in my library. Uh, it's called The Long March, The Untold Story by Harrison E. Salisbury. 
Um, apparently, he and his wife in the 70s and 80s went on the same trek that the uh, communists uh, and the Red Army went on uh, with Mao Zedong, known as the Long March, and uh, interviewed a bunch of uh, folks who had been there, who had been in the party, who had watched as the uh, uh, resistance had marched through their uh, neighborhoods in the mountains and in the rural areas. And uh, it's it's pretty big, so I'm expecting that it's going to have a lot of details. So um, I think folks should check this out. I'm excited to read it. And then some other ones, just uh, real quick. Um, I mentioned State and Revolution. I have a copy on my phone, which has also John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the World. Uh, folks should check that out. Uh, similar book would be uh, Black Bolshevik. Uh, autobiography of an Afro-American Communist by Harry Haywood. Um, and one other similar but uh, pretty different, just uh, having to do with Russia and, uh, you know, things that were going on. Tariq Ali, who, uh, you know, you mentioned some organizations and some publishers are more of the Trotskyist type. I've come to the conclusion that uh, Tariq seems to be himself. Uh, but he I really enjoy is. He's very, very committed Trotskyist. Yeah, that's I, I didn't I didn't want to make it seem like I was trying to come at him. But yes, he is a very committed Trotskyist. Um, he wrote a book called The Dilemmas of Lenin. I really enjoyed it. Now, I know it's not good to romanticize revolutionaries, but it was such a good historical capsule of, you know, the things that Lenin himself did and endured throughout the Russian Revolution. And I think Tariq used uh, uh, a lot of that to show examples of how socialism and communism really were uh, more than just ideas, but actual uh, practical gains that were had for millions of people, one of whom had to be Lenin. Uh, and then one more on that, which I enjoyed, was uh, uh, Comrade by uh, Jody Dean. Um, but then a few others, just real quick. Uh, you mentioned that book on sanctions as warfare. A similar book, which I think was very interesting, was uh, Vivaremos, Venezuela versus Hybrid War, uh, which came out in, I believe, 2020. Um, some other books are, uh, let me see here. I'm trying to find some more interesting and less like, like stereotypical, like, books but i do think that everybody should read for example like uh you know i got proletarian revolution and the renegade kautsky i think folks should read um state and rev uh kwame nkrumah's neo-colonialism is a great addition to uh um lenin's imperialism the highest stage of capitalism uh and then a few more just real quick uh i really enjoyed Settlers by Jay Sakai, as well as look forward to reading an indigenous people's history of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, and also um, As Long as the Grass Grows. Um, and then just real quick, one more. Um, which one? So uh, this one's maybe a little bit more dense for some people, but. Uh, Continuity and Rupture by J. Mufawad Paul. 
I really enjoyed that book. It really opened my eyes to the idea of revolution as a science and understanding the dialectical approach to organizing and to building struggles. And one book that uh, also helped me uh, develop this idea of kind of really being able to look at a ongoing struggle as a uh, process, as a um, building uh, movement was um, uh, the two tactics of social democracy in a uh, democratic revolution and also, um, just because I also really enjoyed it, What is to be Done by Lenin. I think those are two works that, although they are more stereotypical and maybe not necessarily, quote, useful today, I do think that a lot of the information that you can learn in that shows how to approach uh, building movements and, uh, you know, as we mentioned, seeing and meeting the needs of the people and being able to put out, you know, uh, literature, put uh, together demonstrations, uh, build community organizations and also uh, unions and other forms of, uh, you know, mass mobilization and organization that can uh, really begin to uh, do more than just, you know, put out uh, policies or say that they're going to develop bills that they never pass or, you know, put forward, uh, uh, you know, performing and, uh, you know, almost acting uh, on issues like uh, climate change, uh, racial justice, uh, and all kinds of things that the uh, subsequent administrations, not just the Biden administration, not just the Trump administration, but, you know, plenty of administrations, if not all of them, have held uh, quite similar. And uh, one last book, if I can, because it, it kind of applies here and I think folks should read it, is uh, Black Power, The Politics of Liberation by Kwame Toure and Charles V. Hamilton. So those are all my suggestions. Uh, Henry, do you have anything else that you would like to say before uh, plugging yourself and all your works and uh, saying goodbye to folks? No, I think that we had a good conversation. I had a lot of fun, uh, Anna. You know, I maybe wasn't at my most, uh, you know, eloquent today, but uh, did my best. Uh, hopefully it came across okay. Hopefully people got something useful out of the conversation. Um but yeah, if you want me at a little bit, you know, more prepared, more eloquent, and with people who are absolutely brilliant, uh, they should check out Guerrilla History with uh, myself, Adnan Hussein, Professor Adnan Hussein, and Brett O'Shea of Revolutionary Left Radio. Um, like I've, I've been saying it many times, so the folks don't need to hear more about what we've got coming up, but we've got some really interesting stuff coming up uh, with some excellent guests. So if you haven't listened to the show before, now is a good time to start listening. We've got a pretty good back catalog going now. So if you're just going to start listening now for the first time, uh, check out some of those old episodes. We've got a lot of really interesting ones. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. I had a lot of fun. As did I, my friend. It was a great conversation. I'm very excited to uh, continue speaking with you and learning more from your show. Folks ought to check out also uh, the Patreon so that you can get the Patreon-exclusive content. Uh, folks ought to also check out um, Brett's shows, uh, Red Menace, with 
uh, Allison, as well as Revolutionary Left Radio. And Henry, if you would help me here, what is uh, the name of Adnan's show other than the David Feldman show he does with you, his own podcast that he puts together? Yes. I cannot remember the name of yes. it. Yes, absolutely. It's called The Mudgeless. And I'll just do, I'll, I'll be Adnan for a second. A mudgeless was the word that they used uh, in Arabic to describe a, a gathering of knowledge people where they would get together and have discussions about events of the world, uh, kind of these, these interesting um, academic almost discussions between learned people. And uh, his show is operated in conjunction with the, let me see if I can get the name right, it's Muslim Society Global Perspectives Project at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada which has been described by several people as the Harvard of Canada. So if you're unaware of uh, Queens, it's a very prestigious institution. But that podcast looks at uh, Muslim world, uh, diaspora, uh, the Middle East, North Africa, things like that. Very interesting show. Um, I've learned a lot from it myself. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend people look that up. It's spelled, I guess I should probably spell it for people, M-A-J-L-I-S. So you can look up the Mudgeless M A J L I S podcast, and you'll find it on basically any app that you that you look for on it. Uh, and I'll also just plug my own Twitter then, because I I just I tweet mostly like random stuff, whatever I feel like at the moment. It's almost all political in nature, so don't worry. Like you're not going to be seeing um, like today I'm eating cucumbers or anything like that. Like it is political based, but it's just kind of uh, whatever is on the top of my head slash what's hit me in the news recently. You can follow me at Huck1995, that's H-U-C-K-1995, and you can follow Gorilla History, which is a little bit more topical, uh, at Gorilla underscore pod, G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A underscore pod. Awesome, my friend. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. It was really great hearing from you. I uh, hope you and your uh, partner have a great rest of your day. Um, and that uh, you stay well uh, and stay safe. Yeah, thank you very much. And thanks again for having me on the show. We'll uh, keep in touch.